0: You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM, your Peace and Justice Community Radio Station uh, here in New York. Uh for our uh, next segment, uh we're going to uh, delve into uh, a a a long-time uh, really injustice in the criminal uh, justice system here in New York, uh, the case of uh, Carl Miller. Uh he was convicted of a murder in 1980 of a prominent rabbi in Crown Heights. Uh, so much of the evidence points that somebody else uh, did it. Uh, the police uh, knew who that person was and went down uh probably the wrong path. And Carl Miller spent uh, over 30 years behind bars. He was released in 2010 and independence. Ted Ham has been following uh, this case and wrote a, a really outstanding feature story in our current print edition called Waiting for Exoneration. And uh, uh, Amit and I, we spoke with both uh, Ted and Carl Miller earlier today about the case and the prospects uh, of Carl getting exoneration and the latest developments around that. Ted Hamm and Carl Miller, welcome both of you to the Independent News Hour. Thanks, John. Hey,
1: Thank you. Good afternoon.
0: Uh, right. It's So good to have both of you uh, with us. Uh, Ted, let's start with this, uh, case, uh, where Carl Miller was uh, convicted, um, of, of murder in 1980 of a very prominent rabbi in, in uh, Crown Heights. Can you just give us the synopsis of this case and why you think, uh, the guilty verdict all those years ago, uh, was a, gr- a grievous, uh, mistake?
2: Sure. So it was uh, late October of 1979, as you say, and uh, Rabbi David Akunov, who's a a Soviet exile, Soviet Union exile, uh, was was an armed robbery and he was murdered on Montgomery Street in Crown Heights. And uh, the only thing taken from him was a prayer bag with a prayer shawl. Uh, and a couple other items, but no money. So it's just a completely senseless um, murder. And uh, made the front page of the New York Post the next day. There was a big spread in the Daily News. The New York Times covered it, which they didn't always cover murders back in that time, uh, to this day. Um, and um so this was a big deal. And um, the original suspect was a guy named Daryl Brown who actually was a friend of Carl's at the time and um, make a long story short they uh, police have moved their investigation shifted from Daryl Brown to Carl because because uh, Daryl Brown said Carl did uh, there was a lot of circumstances of that. Um, identification that I couldn't bring into the story, but it happened while Daryl Brown was in the hospital and things like that, been shot, and so on, so it's really a dubious identification, and two witnesses, two eyewitnesses, one who saw the murder and one who saw uh Daryl or someone running towards the building where Daryl Brown was um, uh, arrested, uh, neither of those eyewitnesses identified Carl Miller in a lineup. And Carl identified or volunteered for a lineup, which, as I mentioned in the story, is um, not usually done by someone who uh, potentially stands to be identified. I think that's a sign that they're confident in their innocence. Um, So, anyway, so uh, September 1980, Carl goes to trial, jury of 11 whites and one black um, uh, convict him. And um, he's then sentenced to uh, 25 to life. Is that correct, Carl? Yes, it is. Okay, so it's 25 to life. And um, he begins to go before the parole board in 2004 and maintains his innocence. And that, that process repeats in 2006 and 2008. And he is rejected each time. Um, and finally in 2010, he, he gains parole, um, and, uh, so that's the nutshell, in, in a nutshell, that's his 30 plus years, he went to Rikers after being arrested in fall of 79, so it was 30 plus years incarcerated, uh, mostly upstate, at, uh, Greenhaven and Sing Sing and among other places um so uh the whole time he maintained his his innocence and uh then he came out go ahead
1: when i came out when i was released in 2010
2: yeah right i'm sorry i thought uh okay the um so the cf after you after came out after carl came out um he then uh, eventually contacted the conviction review unit of the DA's office and they launched an initial investigation, closed that investigation. Uh then they um a few a few years ago you began Carl began working with a lawyer named James Henning and his private investigator Dan Levine. And um in the course of that they, they, they were able to get the DA's conviction review unit to open a second investigation. And they found, um, out the, among other things that there were other suspects, um, on the prosecutor's radar at the time. And they also found that, uh, notorious detective Louis Scarsella, future detective Louis Scarsella was a precinct cop in Crown Heights who was involved in the initial investigation. So that added another layer. Of intrigue to the story about how the original conviction moved from, uh, the original, the original suspect moved from Daryl Brown to Carl. Well, uh,
0: why is, uh, Louis Scarsella's presence, uh, problematic for people who don't know the story? Of- <laughs>
2: okay. You're throwing me a softball there, John. <laughs> uh, Scarcella is responsible for, um, 20 convictions that have been reversed either by the Brooklyn DA's conviction review unit or judges. Uh, so, his handiwork as a detective. So, this case, as I said, preceded his um, becoming a detective. Scarsella was not yet a detective, but he was on his way to becoming a detective at the time.
3: And so, and quickly, um, Ted. Where do things stand now with the Brooklyn DA's office and their review of of Carl's conviction? Is there any, you know, are things closed? Are things open? Uh, there m- may be some
2: be um, the subsequent to the story coming out, and some I know that some of the players uh, mentioned in the story, including the uh, prosecutor and Scarcella, um, um, have the trial prosecutor that was. Uh, have actually, um, you know, they've seen the story and, and there may, there may be some, um, further investigation undertaken by the DA's office. Um, we're sort of, you know, uh, we'll see what happens
3: great and you can read that story on independent.org or in one of our newspapers and newspaper boxes and libraries and other venues around the city for free um but carl now we wanted to pivot to you um can you just talk a little bit about what being incarcerated all that time uh how it affected you particularly you know while you were maintaining your innocence
1: well how it affected me, it took me away from my family, it took me away from my son and my daughter, who I didn't have the opportunity to raise. Um, I was serving time for a conviction that I knew that I had not committed. And, you know, when you go inside the prison system, you know, some people would try to maintain like, you know, oh, I'm, yeah, I did the crime to have this badge of honor because you went in prison. But then those of us who haven't committed a crime, we're going to always maintain our innocence no matter what. So when you go in and you like that, you're up against the challenge of, you know, what do I do? Do I run around here saying that I did something that I didn't do or you continue to maintain your innocence? And that's that's what i done. And, you know, during my incarceration, you know, I went to school, got my GED, went to college, got some college and just kept pursuing you know the conviction to overturn the conviction wrote to different lawyers many different lawyers suck out um sought out many lawyers you know and some responded some didn't you know so you keep going you keep going so throughout the incarceration like i said these are things that i have done you know took some vocational skills i mean vocational classes and things of that nature just to keep myself busy So now when I go to my first parole board in 2004, you know, you're faced with a dilemma. Do you go in there to get parole and say that, oh, I'm guilty when you know you're not. So I went in there and maintained my innocence and said everything that I needed to say. But when you go before a parole board, the only thing that go before the parole board is your sentence minutes. They're not looking at the person as far as what did you do in prison throughout the whole 25 years. You understand what I'm saying? So now. They hit me with two years. So I go back in 2006, same story, no remorse. I didn't have nothing to do with it. Hit me with another two years. Go back in 2008, same story. Go back in 2010, same story. Then I get parole. And -hmm. once I'm parole, I come out, as Ted said, you know, I wrote to Ken Thompson. I wrote to Eric Adams when he was the Brooklyn Borough President. You know, look at this case, look at this case. There's so many flaws. Sarah Wallace, different people. Different people, then I um, finally ran into James Hennings, and this is where I'm at right now.
3: Yes, Carl. Uh, that that it so, seems so so frustrating. I know that in general the practices that at parole, if you don't say that you're guilty he's going to stay in. And that's one of the many horrendous sort of norms of the incarceration system. Another one of which I wanted to you to mention briefly, which is the ability or disability to find work after, but shouldn't be so hard for anyone, even if you did commit a crime. But again, particularly if you didn't, I'm sure that's been uh, quite difficult. Can you just talk a little bit about that and, you know, how it leads to recidivism?
1: Yeah, what happens with that is I don't know. I know the city they have the law, they used to have a box that you check and you don't check. Have you been incarcerated, have you been convicted of crime? They supposed to have changed that. But some places are uh, what we would consider felony friendly, you know, like the parks department in the city, transit, uh sanitation, they're felony friendly. And you know, you go take these exams and sometimes people will look at the you know, the thing as far as background checks. Now, once they do a background check, they see that you was convicted of a murder. They can go extensive in that because you can just Google the person's name and you say, oh, this guy was convicted of murdering a a rabbi. Well, you're not going to hire him. They're not going to say that, but they'll push your application to the side. And going through that frustration there, you know, I had to move because parole wasn't giving me a shot to be terminated off of parole while I was out there. I was on parole almost nine years before they terminated my parole. Cause when you are on life parole, you're on life parole. Some people come out with gainful employment, family ties, everything else. You can be terminated off of parole in three years. But I wasn't terminated off of parole into nine years. So now the same thing applies. I go to get a job and they see that you're on parole. They don't wanna hire you because they don't want parole officers coming to their facility or to their workplace. So in that sense, I did the back to work program. I worked for Fulton Ferry Liquidation. I worked for the Fort Greene Council, the senior citizen, Grace Agard on Fulton. And um, from there, I came upstate and I worked at Pet Boy Auto Plus. So when I get laid off, so, you know, I'm doing unemployment now. So I'm putting in for a different job. Right now, I'm just waiting for UPS to call me back to take the road test for their seasonal job. Good
3: luck.
1: Yeah, thank you. But some... have it good because they go into construction and things of that nature. And they really don't do no background check when you go into construction, but you know, you can get in. But in my case, I believe a lot of times when they did do the background check, these things came up. I took civil service exam for the state. Why would I go take the visual recognition fingerprints? If I'm trying to hide anything, I'm not trying to hide anything, but the conviction is a stigma. It's a right. stigma for gainful employment.
0: One more question for you, Carl, real quick. Uh, in in uh, the article, uh, the in the photo uh, where you appear um, uh, on the street corner in Crown Heights, revisiting that neighborhood with Ted, uh, you're wearing a T-shirt that says, From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. Uh, uh, can you talk about that message?
1: That there was a T-shirt that I had bought from the Legacy Museum. Um, and the Legacy Museum founder, I forget his name, Stephen, um, I forget his name, Ted, I probably know his I name.
2: Brian Stevenson.
1: Brian Stevenson. Uh, and he had the uh, uh, Equal Justice Initiative, and he works on wrongful conviction of people on death row and stuff like that. So while I was in Montgomery, Alabama, you know, me and my wife visited the Legacy Museum, and I like the T-shirt because I was part of that mass incarceration in the 80s. And you know, so that's, you know, is a t-shirt that I love, you know.
0: Okay. That's, uh, that's a great backstory. Uh, so, uh, uh, Carl and Ted, we thank you both for joining us today on the independent news hour and we will continue to follow this case. Thank
2: you. Thanks,
0: John. So again, that was Carl Miller and, and the independents, Ted Ham talking about Carl's continuing quest for exoneration on a m- murder condition. Conviction uh, he received in 1980. We have a great story about it in our current print edition. Uh, we will come back with more. Uh, Am and I will be discussing the situation in uh, Israel and Palestine uh, after this short music break.